as Larry mentioned, we are continuing in our Holy Spirit series this morning. And what I want to do first off this morning is I want to start by inviting you to remember a story that we looked at actually a couple weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday. Before we get into the text for this morning, I want you to remember that story. And it's the story of when the Holy Spirit was released from heaven, finally released from heaven, to fall on the disciples in Jerusalem, while at the same time, the city was covered in visitors from all over the known world. Okay, that was the setting. Now, just imagine then, if you can remember, that you are one of those visitors in Jerusalem. Okay, you're one of those visitors in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. You've grown up, you know, elsewhere in Damascus or Tyre or somewhere on the coast or maybe in Rome, perhaps. And your parents taught you a little bit of Hebrew, maybe some Aramaic. You know the official languages of the empire, like Greek or Latin, to get around. But for your whole life, you've used your own common dialect or street language, whatever that might be. For our purposes this morning, maybe it's English. Maybe it's Dutch. Maybe it's Korean. Maybe it's Indonesian. Maybe it's Portuguese. You've learned your own language. And that's, of course, the language that you've used throughout your whole life, but you wouldn't expect to hear it in Jerusalem. You would never expect to hear it in Jerusalem. But suddenly, as you're walking through the crowds along the streets, you hear the sound of this whole big group of people that are just shouting out God's praises in different languages. And at first it just sounds like a noise, like a cacophony of voices. But you get closer and you start hearing, oh no, these are different languages. And the closer you get to them, suddenly you can actually pick out that one of them, maybe even more than one, is speaking your language. A language that most people in this city, in the Roman Empire, would just look down on, would snuff to the side. Your language. You're hearing somebody speaking about the wonders of God. Somebody speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the power of God's Spirit, in your language. And it's as if God is plucking you right out of the crowd and he's grabbing you by the shoulders and he's saying, I want you to understand me. I want you to know me. I want you to know what I've done for you, that I've understood you and that I am reaching out to you. It's like nothing you've ever felt before because it feels entirely and intentionally personal. In that moment, it's as if God has singled you out. He's reaching out to you through your Holy Spirit. And you realize in that moment that he's doing that to everybody else around you because they're all responding in the exact same way that you are. And that has never happened before, or at least not to an ordinary person like you. You know, you've always expected God to work through important people to bring about his kingdom and to work through his Holy Spirit to do big things, but you never expected him to do anything so personal as this. Where it's as if he's saying to you, you matter to me. Well, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to explore this characteristic of God and specifically looking at it in Romans 8. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if you want to grab one of those Bibles that are in front of you in the pews, you can turn to Romans 8. We're going to be reading from 
verses 14 to 17. And I want us to focus in this morning on the reality that the Spirit, as I've alluded to and as as Paul will emphasize, although he doesn't use these exact terms, I want to focus this morning in on the reality that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the personal presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the experience of God's personal presence within us. Which, when I say it like that, may sound familiar to you or maybe nothing revolutionary, but it's actually got some pretty massive implications that I don't think we often focus on. So I want to do that this morning. I want to spend some time here. So let's read Romans 8, starting at verse 14. It'll also be on the screen. Paul writes this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so one quick note before we continue, and I I do want us to remember this. Whenever we speak about the Holy Spirit, we do use a masculine pronoun for speaking about the Spirit, just as we use a masculine pronoun for speaking about God. But I think it's important to remember that the reason we do that and the reason that Scripture does that is, again, because of this personalization. God wants us to be able to personalize him rather than, say, calling the Spirit it. But in no way are we inferring that the Spirit is either male or female, okay? I just, I want us to remember that. There's one of my favorite scholars on the Spirit, Gordon Fee, puts it this way. God is God and includes in himself all that is essential to our being male and female, while at the same time transcending such distinctions, okay? So keep in mind always that God transcends gender. Okay? He created gender. He created male and female. So, but he allows us to use a masculine pronoun for him. That's a gift to us so that we can personalize him. Okay? So I just want to make that clear before we go on. I mean, the word for, for spirit is pneuma, which is actually a feminine word. So in, in and of itself, again, God encapsulates both male and female. But he gives us this as a gift. Okay, so... Let's go through these verses then, one by one, starting at verse 14. Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's kind of a big statement to make, okay? Notice already here that there's a condition. It's not that everybody is just stamped with the child of God sticker. It's those specifically who are led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are the children of God are led by the Spirit. There's a condition there. There's a huge emphasis here then, put on the guiding work of the Spirit to shape us and identify us as God's children. Because it's the Spirit then that identifies us and distinguishes us as God's children from any other people group. The Spirit does that. We don't do that. The Spirit identifies us as God's children. And then verse 15, this same spirit that you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
Okay, so not only then does the Spirit identify or classify us as God's children, you know, in theory or on paper, He actually brings about our adoption. He brings it about so that we can then call God Father and not be afraid of it. The Spirit is what allows us to do that. Again, that's nothing that we're doing in and of ourselves. If you have the confidence to call God Father, the Spirit is doing that for you. It's the Spirit working within you because it's the Spirit, it's by the Spirit that you've even been allowed to call God Father. But where does this language of adoption come from? Well, why does Paul use the language of adoption at all? Well, in, think of it this way. In the Roman Empire, adoption was a really serious thing. And that's in large respect because, as Will Barclay notes, um, he's a scholar that really digs into context, which is great. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew of this thing called patria potestas. Okay? Patria meaning father, potestas meaning power. It referred to the power of the patria or the power of the father or the grandfather in a, in a family unit. The father, in other words, in Roman society, had absolute power and possession over the family. So adoption then was a really serious thing because one, whoever was being adopted, was passing from one patria power to another. As Barclay puts it, an adopted child had to pass out of the possession and control of one father and into the equally absolute possession and control of another. So this meant that anything in the child's former life was gone, was done. This was a completely new identity that was now being formed for this child. Any debts, any family history, any former names, that was all done because that was associated with the power of this patria. Whereas now, being adopted into this family, they were under the complete possession of this other father. It's a completely clean slate. And here, for good or bad, but here, Paul is trying to give us the clue or assert to us that this is exactly what has happened to us. We've been transferred from being possessed and under the control of, of sin or of the world or of our past life and have been taken under the ultimate authority and possession of God. As a child of God, led by his spirit, we've now been adopted taken under the absolute possession and power of our Heavenly Father. And the, Spirit, and the Spirit, Paul says, brought this about. Because it's, this, it's by the Spirit that we can actually cry out to God, you are my Father. It's by the Spirit that we actually realize that this crazy transaction has happened. So when we call out or we sing to God as Father, as our Father, this isn't just some sort of blind confidence or a conclusion that we've come to on our own. No. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's who's doing it. Paul's making it very clear in this passage that this has nothing to do with us. The Spirit is doing everything. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It is only by the Spirit's interworking with our spirit that this revelation is even made clear to us, that we can even know that this is what's happened. As Michael Green put it, Christian assurance 
is no mere intellectual persuasion, but an overwhelmingly convincing experience of the indwelling spirit welling up within us. It's not, again, it's not this logical conclusion that we come to on our own or by reading a lot of books, like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. No, it's the spirit working within us, indwelling us and connecting us to the Father. The spirit, again, is the experience of God's personal presence within us, working and assuring us and giving the confidence to say that we are God's child. I am Abba's child. You are Abba's child. If that connects to you, it's not because I'm saying it, but it's because the spirit within you is testifying with your spirit and assuring you that this is true. It's true. But when you think about it, how insane is that? What kind of God, what God ever, anywhere, has ever allowed his creation to do this? It doesn't actually make any logical sense because in proper human divine terms, only Jesus should be allowed to call God Father because, you know, they got the same divinity genes, right? They got the same divine DNA. That makes sense. But here Paul's telling us that we can do this because we've been adopted. Not because we're divine. Because we've been adopted. We've been adopted into that divine family. When you think about it, that is an honor that doesn't make sense. (laughs) But what a beautiful thing. We've been adopted into the family of God. The spirit, that divine spirit within us, qualifies us to belong in God's family. And so we too now, with Jesus, can call him Father. And even that's not the end of it. Verse 17, there's more. Now if we are children, which we are, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So, In other words, because we are now adopted children, we are also now heirs of the Father's estate or of his blessings. So just as, just like a will, when you think of a will, it indicates how someone's wealth or belongings will get transferred over to the next generation or how it's going to be distributed. The Spirit is what indicates to us that we will get to share in God's treasures that we are going to inherit the same thing that Jesus has inherited, that we are going to receive the treasures just as Jesus has, with Jesus. So, in other words, just as I'm allowed to say confidently that I am legally the daughter of Sid and Winnie Veenboss, it is then not arrogant or presumptuous to also say that I belong to Christ, that I am the child of the Heavenly Father, that I get to receive his inheritance, and be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. It's not presumptuous to say that because the Spirit's allowing me to say that. I haven't done anything to deserve it, but by the Spirit, I can say confidently that God has adopted me into his family and he wants me to know, he means for me to know that I belong there. This is why those early believers in Jerusalem and the visitors were singled out. 
chosen, addressed, acknowledged, because God meant for them to understand this. His big adoption project was underway, and he wanted them to know that this is what he had planned all along. This is what he wanted them to understand. And it was all happening because Jesus' death paid our dues. And his resurrection signified the hope in a new creation. And his ascension released for us the spirit from heaven so that we could become God's adopted children. That is the beautiful message of Scripture that begins at Pentecost. And so, okay, to sum this part up then, let's just reaffirm a couple of realities that I really want us to grasp this morning. In all of this, first, the Spirit is personal, not abstract, okay? The Spirit is not, he's not a force of nature or a ghost or like, you know, the Star Wars force where there's a dark and a light side or an energy field or an emotion or kind of just our conscience talking to us. The Spirit is the personal presence of God. Look again at what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. That's often the hardest thing, right? We don't see the Spirit. It's very difficult to not think of it, him, in terms of some abstract thing. But you know him, says Paul, or says Jesus, for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, so the Spirit here is referred to as, as an advocate. As a, second, as, a, as a separate entity, a, a, a person, a divine capital P person, the one by which we experience the presence of God. And this is why, this is why in Paul's writing, the Spirit changes everything. The Spirit changes everything. He's kind of a big deal. Because the Spirit is how we actually live out our faith until Christ returns. We cannot live out our faith without the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible. But I wonder this morning, no, oh, I sound like Pastor Liz. I wonder, boys and girls, I wonder, now that we've talked about him for a bit and emphasized how important he is, how many of us were actually taught to listen and to watch for the Spirit at work? Was this a normal conversation for us? Has this been a normal conversation for us? To know and to look for this presence of Jesus within us. See, because, you know, our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters don't have exclusive rights to the Spirit. That's just not fair. They don't own the Spirit. For Paul... The Spirit was a crucial matter for every Christian. Every Christian. Because the Spirit is how Jesus comes to us. The Spirit is how the world sees Jesus in us. The Spirit can't possibly get any closer to us. Because you can't get closer than in. Do we realize this? Because secondly, the Spirit... Not only is the Spirit personal and a person, the Spirit works together then with our spirit to connect us to Christ. You're not simply a, a Christian by name, you know. 
You're a walking, talking, breathing sign of the presence of God. You are a walking, talking, breathing sign of the personal presence of God. You've got God's stamp on you simply by nature of the reality that you have his spirit within you. Again, based on nothing that you could have ever done for yourself. For all of us then, our job as God's adopted children is simply this. Not to quench him. We cannot quench As Paul puts it elsewhere, we cannot quench the spirit of our Father and the spirit of Christ within us because we'll never become like him otherwise. People won't see him in us. And the spirit doesn't like that because the spirit's favorite thing in the world is connecting us to Jesus and connecting others to Jesus through us. And if we're not listening to him and and not letting him connect to our spirit so that we can work together, To be honest, that's like slapping our adoption in the face. Verse 14 again, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. And that's not just every once in a while. We need to be led by the Spirit of God to be children of God. So my encouragement to us this morning, but it's to find ways to practice the personal presence of God so that we can attune our hearts and our minds to his Holy Spirit and experience him that way, in that personal way. Because, frankly, presence means everything. And we've learned that in a lot, the last couple of years of you know, COVID and being isolated from one another, like a phone call or a Zoom chat or a live stream or a picture or a letter or a memento never actually replaces, it's, it's okay, it's good, but it never actually replaces the actual presence of someone. When we lose someone, what we miss most is their presence with us. When we're feeling sick or ill or down, soothing words are helpful, but what we need most is people to be with us. Presence. Presence means everything. God's made us this way because we're made in his image, in his personal image. And some of that personal, relational personality is embedded within us because this is how he wants us to connect. This is how he wants to connect with us. Just the way that he's made us indicates that this is how he wants to connect with us. Just by nature of the reality that we as human beings are personal indicates that this is who God is. And this is how he wants to relate to us as well. So then, how can we practice How can you practice the personal presence of Jesus today? What are ways that we can do this? However it might be, you know, make it your practice for this week just to think about it, to be attentive to him and to his spirit moving through you. Because the reality is that that's how other people see Jesus as well. It's by the spirit moving and working through you. We need to be attentive to this. How do we do this? Well, Here's one example. Um, It's a common Christian experience, and N.T. Wright has noted this, that within our ordinary flow of consciousness, sometimes other thoughts just seem to come out of nowhere, right? Have you ever had that before? Just a thought or a person comes to mind out of nowhere. Thoughts that seem to hint us towards God's love, 
perhaps towards our own need for holiness. It's a convicting word or perhaps a task that we should pay attention to. And a key part of our Christian discipleship is actually to listen to those little nigglings. It's to listen to that little voice sometimes and to nurture the discipline of listening to it as it may very well be the Spirit of God speaking to you. Other times it's a moment of of unexplainable peace that just washes over you in a really difficult moment. A tingling sensation when you pray, tears for someone, when you feel deeply moved, a a sudden attentiveness to a a beautiful part of creation around you. Something just out of nowhere moves you and you're just, where did that come from? Ah, I know where it came from. (laughs) We have to know where that came from. Sometimes it's a text from someone just when you need it most. A note that says, I'm praying for you. Or a sudden feeling that you should pray for someone else and message them and say that they came to mind and you wanted to reach out. That's the gentle nudging of the Spirit within us. Because God wants to be present with us just as much as he desires to be present through us to others. To work his Spirit with ours. Last week, I was able to hear some stories from our newest refugee family, and I had a great conversation with Asma, who gave me permission to share this. Um, she's the mother in the, in the family of that, uh, the refugee family that we've recently been able to welcome here to Canada. And she was sharing that, although she grew up in an incredibly hostile Muslim context, Jesus was already reaching out to her when she was a child through dreams. And you know what his message to her was? You belong to me. You belong to me. He came to her by his spirit in dreams to assure her that she was his. That message was given to her and delivered to her through his spirit working with hers. That was the spirit working with Asma's spirit to connect her to Jesus. This is what he does. This is how personal he desires to be with us. I just, I heard that and I thought, what a great timing. I'm going to use this next week. But that is such a beautiful example of how deeply and how personally Jesus desires to interact with us and to assure us that we belong to him. So, We need to tune our hearts and our minds to receive that. Even in, most of us experience it in smaller ways, but that's why we need to attune our hearts and minds to be more attentive and to listen to those little promptings, no matter how strange they may seem or trivial. Why? Because again, what the Spirit wants to do is to assure us that we are God's children. All the time, the Spirit wants to assure us that we are God's children. He wants to infuse our spirits with the love of Jesus. And, you know, when you are a part of the community of Jesus Christ, as little Rowan now is, and as he will continue to learn, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you belong here. That you have been adopted by God the Father and you now belong to him as his child. The Holy Spirit, in the other words, in other words, is God's personal guarantee that you belong to him and that he desires to be in relationship with you. And you know, that's not going to change. Because God doesn't just give us his spirit and then take it away when we ignore him. That's not how it works. 
The Spirit is always there, nudging us, prompting us, whispering to us, reminding us that we are co-heirs with Christ and that the blessing or the inheritance of eternity in his presence is coming down the pipes. And that's where he wants to lead us. Let's pray. Living God, we want to thank you this morning for your word. Uh, Lord, there are many times where we struggle to understand it. We struggle to understand the implications, Lord. But we thank you for the gift that your Holy Spirit is that enables us to receive you, to hear from you, to connect with you, even when we don't understand. We thank you for the gift this morning of being reminded that we belong to you. As we watched Rowan be baptized, and as we spoke of being your children, grant us more of your Holy Spirit, Lord. May it become less about us and more about you. May we become more like you by your Spirit. May we be more attentive to the ways that you speak to us and the ways that you remind us that we belong to you. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.